Hey folks, you're listening to the Progress Report on the Harbinger Media Network. And I just got a quick message before we get into what is a very good pod. We are at 440-some regular monthly donors to this independent little media project, and I would love to get it to 500 monthly donors by the end of the month. Uh, if you want to get us over the hump, get us to 500 monthly donors, uh, it's very easy. Go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, pop in your credit card, and give whatever you can, $5, $10, $15 a month. We'd really appreciate it. And if you don't have the means, don't stress. But again, we're about 60 folks away from getting there. And it's really important to Jim and I that, that we become sustainable when it comes to funding. We're also one of several very good and excellent left-wing podcasts on the Harbinger Media Network. And a new episode that I want to recommend is the latest from Habib T. Please, where Nashua and Ryan welcome Mumalak Kakak to discuss her role as MP of Nunavut, the lingering impacts of colonialism on the North, and how that area of the country has been neglected. And that's the kind of content you'll get at Harbinger, where we're challenging right-wing and liberal corporate media dominance with a political point of view you won't find anywhere else. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichiwaskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 Territory. And joining me today is a friend of the show, Avnish Nanda. I think this is his third time on the show, joining a couple of other three-time guests. Uh, Avnish is a human rights and constitutional lawyer based here in Edmonton. Avnish, welcome back to the pod. Thanks for having me on, Duncan. And also joining us is new guest to the pod, recommended by Avnish, Adam Sembrowski of Nugent Law. Uh, Adam is a lawyer uh, with Nugent Law Offices who specializes in labor and employment issues. Adam, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. So the reason why we have two law-talking guys on the pod today is uh, there are a couple of very interesting uh, and important legal cases that uh, that these gentlemen are a part of and that are just happening in our province right now. And um, they know a lot more about their cases than I, so I'm just going to jump right into it. So, Avnish, a big reason why I wanted to have you on are the recent developments on the injectable opioid agonist treatment program uh, that we have here in Alberta. Uh, but before we get into the like news around that, can you let our listeners know what this program is, why it's important, and then get to the, the details of the case and kind of what recently happened? For sure. Um, I, I think most of your listeners would be aware that we're in the midst of an unprecedented opioid overdose epidemic. Uh, more than three Albertans a day are dying of um, opioid overdose deaths. These deaths are largely preventable. And, and among the folks who live with opioid use disorder, um, those with the most severe form of this condition, this mental condition, are more likely to die of an opioid overdose death or experience the variety of other harms, social and health harms, from homelessness to acquiring hepatitis C or HIV. And IO, which is the Injectable Opioid Agonist Treatment Program, is the only form of effective medical treatment for these folks, folks with the most severe form of opioid use disorder. And in 2018, Alberta became one of the leaders in this country when it comes to treating these folks. In most provinces, uh, aside from British Columbia, folks with this most severe form of opioid use disorder had no treatment. The only form of way that folks had to you know, medicate their condition was using street source opioids. That, toxic, that, that supply of street opioids is, is extremely toxic, extremely dangerous, and we would see um, a spike in overdose deaths as a result. So Alberta um, was acknowledging what was happening uh, in, you know, in Alberta in terms of the opioid deaths, folks with severe opioid use disorder dying at high rates and implemented IOT, uh, injectable opioid agonist treatment. And this program worked wonders, right? No one died, uh, no patient died who was admitted into the program. Um, they were seeing like, transformative impacts on patients themselves. Folks who had been homeless for you know, decades had stabilized their opioid use disorder, you know, were you know, found housing, uh, connecting with family members, uh, found jobs in many cases, and were living a life that they thought was previously foreclosed to them, that they not, never thought they'd live again because of their medical condition. So it was widely successful. That's how I 
doctors distract us being wildly successful. And then this government uh, takes to power and starts stigmatizing these sorts of harm reduction approaches, stigmatizing those who live with severe opioid use disorder. And basically saying that our model of treating folks who live with this condition is gonna go from um, medical science and things that actually work to simply recovery measures. Um, treatment or programs that basically say, try to encourage people to stop using drugs. Um, uh, an approach that all medical researchers uh, indicate for people who with the most severe form of opioid disorder is, is a failure, that that approach doesn't work, that you need uh, approaches like uh, IOT and other sort of interventionist treatment options. So this government cut it and we had about a hundred folks in the program who were benefiting from the program whose lives were now at risk once it was cut. And the experts, the doctors, everyone involved um, was clear, even the, actually the government experts, that if this program were cut and folks were transitioned back to street source opioids, you'd see many of them die. Uh, so we've launched this lawsuit in September and almost immediately, the government backed out from its initial approach that um, it would shut down the program entirely. So in November, they announced that actually they would allow patients to continue access to 50% of their treatment. So basically access to the medication itself, none of the wraparound supports. So let me just interrupt you there. So they, they were like, oh yeah, this program's great. Uh, actually, no, it, it's terrible. We're, we're going to cut you off by 50% for like, what, what was the reason given for, for cutting it like that? there was no reason given. And, you know, part of our battle, like, I think part of the problem for the government was justifying why it would only get 50% when the evidence and the science says you need 100% to get the outcomes that you want, right? Um, it, it just, it, it wasn't logical, right? It was irrational and people's lives were in the mix. So we continue to fight and, you know, we went to court for an injunction application to allow this treatment to continue while my clients fought the, um, the, the changes in court. And because the deadline to, um, the government proposed to make the changes was March 31st of 2021. So after March 31st of 2021, um, the treatment in its current form wouldn't exist. It would go into that um, deteriorated or that lesser form of treatment. And so we were in court uh, in February on this, and the government then took the position that, you know, we would give 75% of the treatment. And, and I'm talking in kind of like layman terms, right? I don't want to get into the technical details about the treatment and what was being offered, what wasn't. But basically, they're saying, you won't get what we're currently offering today, but you'll get a lesser form of it, 75% of what we offered before. And for my clients, that's not good enough. For my clients, if they don't get the full treatment, you know, there's real likelihood of death. And... We had two patients in the IOP program who, once the announcement was made, kind of lost all hope in the treatment and disengaged, went back to street source opioids and died. We had one patient who had a similar path and ended up contracting HIV. Um, preventable deaths, preventable um, uh, you know, requirement of HIV in that particular case. And there was real harm on my clients. So we wanted the full amount, the full treatment option possible. There's a bit of legal back and forth here, but I think we can cut to the case. Like you've made the case that this is an incredibly important medical treatment, that your clients, if they didn't get this incredibly important medical treatment, would suffer real harm. And so you're going back and forth with the government saying, we want this to continue. They're saying, no, we want to shut it down. I mean, what was the actual reason for them wanting to shut it down? Do they just don't believe that people who use drugs should continue to be alive? Was it cruelty for cruelty's sake? Like, did they even state it out loud? It, it, it was it was bizarre because back when the cut was announced in, in March of 2020, um, the government or the minister, the associate minister, Luan at the time, basically said that, you know, we want to get away of, from giving people, giving people who live with opioid use disorder access to these drugs as if, you know, a harm reduction approach uh, was somehow immoral or didn't achieve the intended Aim, which was to keep people who use drugs alive during the midst of this overdose epidemic. Then later on, when we filed the lawsuit, um, they started blaming the NDP government. They said that actually the IO program was a mess and they needed to figure, figure it out. 
clean it up and ensure it could be accessed in an effective way by patients. Um, <laughs> then they came up with this approach of, well, we'll only give 50% of the treatment, uh, which didn't make any sense, uh, given what they were seeing publicly. And then now they're saying, yeah, we always meant to, you know, our, our aim was always to maintain IOT. We did not mean to cut it. If you believe that we intended to cut it, you weren't listening to us. And the funny thing is that the, 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 all the journalists had the receipts, right? Like they were quite clear and they, they changed position you know, every three or four months based on how the litigation was going or how the public was kind of uh, disturbed by the reports they're hearing about patients potentially dying or being at risk of death because of this government's policy choices. Uh, yeah, classic, you know, we've always been at war with East Asia comment there. I mean, and they just did that. They did that exact same rhetorical trick when it came to the the fight with doctors. They're like, what fight with doctors? What are you talking about? <laughs> parks so, too. Yeah. Par- yeah, parks. They were like, no, we never meant to cut parks. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so some some classic kind of UCP gaslighting and, and doublespeak. Um, but ultimately there was... A happy ending to this uh, case, even though you may have lost uh, a recent court proceeding. Can you walk us through the kind of happy ending here? Yeah, for sure. So we lost in court the injunction on, I believe, a Wednesday or a Thursday. And then we immediately appealed because we found a lot of errors with that court's decision, um, including framing how people who use drugs live and the choices they make. But, you know, on the Tuesday, so less than a week later, the government announces that actually they're going to maintain the treatment in its current form, that there would be no cut to the way, to the model of care, the type of care provided. So now folks will get 100% of the treatment um, that they were promised and they've been experiencing as of today. Problem is, is that no other Albertan who has a severe opioid use disorder, who's at great risk of dying because of the current um, opioid overdose epidemic, is able to access this life-saving, life-sustaining treatment. So at the same time, they're saying, this is essential that folks get this treatment to survive, but we're not going to open it up to other Albertans who are living in similar circumstances. So the fight's not done, but for the hundred or so patients that I represent, this is fantastic news. Like they were crying with tears of joy because uh, of the new of, of HS essentially backing down and continuing to provide this treatment. And if the government had just offered this off the hop, I imagine your clients would have been amenable to continuing at 100% the program that they used that they were on before that you would, yeah. would have agreed. This is all that we asked for, right? And what was, you know, very disappointing and I think terrible is that we've had at least two people die, right? Former patients who disengaged after the announcement was made. And, and you know, as the experts say, because of the announcement, because of the lack of trust in, and what, what this government is doing and overdosed and died. And then we have another patient like I described before who acquired, you know, a serious illness and that's all preventable. That's entirely unnecessary. So uh, I don't know why the government had to spend a year fighting us on this, um, but, you know, credit to my clients, right? These are extremely vulnerable, marginalized people who sacrifice so much to take this government on in court, right? Uh, and this is not an easy thing to do. And you don't hear good stories in these types of cases, particularly with this government. So it's really remarkable what a, what a group of people who are marginalized can do if they organize and get together. Yeah, it's nice to get a happy ending for once. Uh, Avnish, you were also working on another kind of, um, you know, I would frame it as a public interest legal case for, uh, again, for some of society's most vulnerable people. Uh, what can you tell us? about uh, your case about uh, youth in care and the benefits for those former youth in care and what happened with that case and um, what's what's happening currently as well as, and then Adam, you can jump in at any time there once it gets to the the part about uh, a recent decision that actually helps everyone in Alberta when it comes to getting the government to stop doing bad things. (laughs) Yeah, so I've been on the pod before talking about the SAFA challenge or the support financial assistance challenge it's the a program for former children in care or foster care and child welfare system who once they age out you know they turn over 18 uh, they, they don't have the capacity or the ability to function on their own as an independent adult 
uh, in a healthy and sustainable manner. So for those vulnerable and marginalized youth, the government continues to provide wraparound emotional and financial supports. Um, initially, this, uh, these supports were promised until the age of 24. So a youth and a social worker would develop a plan from the age of 18 to the age of 24, mapping out you know, what goals they need to achieve in order to live a safe and sustainable life as an adult. And this government gets into power and last, I think it was November 20, November 2019, the government announces that actually they're gonna cut funding at age 22. And anyone who is in the program currently over the age of 22 um, will be cut off immediately. So you have folks who have built out transition plans to independent adulthood for over the course of six years, being told like in the case of my client, that they have six months to achieve what they have left on their plans that would take normally two and a half years, right? We're talking things like jobs training, um, graduating from school, um, learning how to, uh, you know, simple things, learn how to drive to more serious things of, in, case, in the case of my client, ensuring that her um, drug, use, uh, drug and alcohol use recovery program was going as intended because her big aim was to create a household, she's a young daughter, where um, that was free from drug or alcohol use, right? Important things to allow people to live safe and sustainable lives, not only for themselves, but for their children. So, and, and the story of your client here is an absolutely heartbreaking one. And, and we will link to the, the podcast, um, the old podcast that features the more details on this case in the show notes. But like suffice to say, like this woman has gone through some terrible things and these supports were really like helping her get her life in order. And then they were all of a sudden taken away by the government just to like save a couple of million dollars on a budget line. Most likely we don't really know why they got rid of the program anyways, but. Exactly. Like for my client, uh, as a child, she faced a tremendous amount of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. Um, as, as a, I think as a t- young teenager, she was sexually trafficked, uh, ended up being, um, rescued from that situation, but for her entire life as a, as a teenager, um, she was involved in sex work to support herself and her family, um, work that she did not want to engage in, to be clear, um, also to support a drug and alcohol um, uh, disorder. And it was just a very difficult existence she's lived up until the point when she was in the SAFA program and she decided that she wanted to change her life. She didn't want her daughter, her four-year-old daughter, to grow up in the system that exposed her to so much harm. She wanted something better for her daughter. So she, you know, she, she stopped using drugs and alcohol. She went back to school. She stopped engaging in sex work. And she was just a semester away from um, transferring to the, to the U of A to complete a Native Studies program to become a, a basically a social worker that works with Aboriginal individuals. Um, and it was just uh, devastating for her when she learned that this program was going to be cut. The first thing that raced through her mind was, you know, I got to drop out of school, return to sex work because I won't make enough money to support myself and my family if I, you know, you know, transition to welfare, which was the alternative for her at the time. So she was just devastated. So she hired me, we brought this lawsuit. Uh, we sought an injunction again, which is basically, in this case, allow my client to continue to access these necessary benefits while our, our, our lawsuit was being decided by the courts, while the constitutionality of what the government did here was being decided. And we won initially. So we won initially, which was big and actually pretty rare. Um, <laughs> you know, injunction requests like this are kind of Hail Mary's. And we won, even though the law technically perhaps at the time wasn't necessarily with us, but we won. And then the government appealed it to the Court of Appeal. And, you know, we, our version of the law was accepted by the court, but if the court applied it in a manner where uh, at the last stage of the test, we didn't win. So uh, unfortunately, my client will be cut off while she is doing the government for this change. And that's going to have real, real direct uh, impacts on her. So we decided to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada to reverse that decision, but also to hopefully clarify the law a bit more to allow people 
who are taking on the government in these charter claims, particularly marginalized and vulnerable people, to give them you know, a better shot at winning because these are hard cases, right? Um, and in the case, in both cases, uh, IO or SAFA, if the government is allowed to, you know, do what it wants while this law, the lawsuits are being decided by the courts, you know, people may die. The, the people who bring the lawsuits may face such serious harms that the lawsuits may not be able to continue. So uh, we need, I think, the Supreme Court of Canada to clarify its approach, and that's what we're hoping the Supreme Court will agree to do. Mm-hmm. And and Adam, you were an intervener in this case, correct? What what was the reason that you were in there, and and what was a, a positive outcome that you saw from from this case? Well, I think so. Yeah, we I along with another lawyer uh, intervened. Um, we were representing AUP in it, and what we really wanted was, as Avnish kind of alluded to, the law was unclear. There'd been an earlier decision where you know, the outcome of the decision left it kind of maybe harder. Uh, to get uh, an injunction application. And, you know, with the kind of law that Avnish practices, you're dealing with really marginalized populations. And these, as he said, are, are Hail Marys. And it's like, you need to bring an injunction. You need to get an injunction to prevent whatever harm uh, is going to be occurring to these people to prevent it from ever occurring. Because otherwise, maybe they can't even continue on with the lawsuit. And your lawsuit is kind of unable to get off the ground before it begins. And so we intervened on a I'll, I'll be honest, a relatively technical dry point. Um, but the court, and this was really nice, um, they kind of felt that they didn't really need to deal with our arguments because they they kind of restated the law as to what um, it was previous to this earlier decision. So really thanks to Avnish and him bringing this case. It's again at a point where hopefully it's easier, or at least possible for individuals seeking to get an injunction to be able to get one in Alberta. And not just individuals, I mean, anyone or any person or any organization where like you can, you can make this argument that harm is happening and might, might be, might be more, more, more possible to get for this Hail Mary to actually work. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For somebody to act, well, I'm not going to torture that metaphor anymore. Um, but yeah, these are incredibly valuable tools. Uh, and, you know, maybe we'll, we can get into this more later, but this is maybe the only kind of tool for people in uh, the position that Avnish's clients find themselves in uh, to get any kind of immediate remedy um, without waiting two, three, ten years for a lawsuit to make its way all the way through the court and just make a final determination on it. And I mean, you're you're in labor law. Oh, go ahead, Avnish. Oh, I was just going to say, just just to build on that point, like, you know, you had a former youth in care, a twenty-year, one-year-old. Um, indigenous woman who lives in such kind of vulnerable circumstances, able to stop this government in its tracks, right? The entire bureaucracy, but also, you know, cabinets. Uh, that's remarkable. I don't know what other tool exists out there for an individual in my client's circumstances to do that. And, and that's kind of the power of injunctions and the power of the law. Yeah. And even I think uh, just bringing an injunction, even if it fails, it can cause the other party, um, if it's being brought against government in a constitutional case, uh, to kind of stop and reassess what they're doing. And so even a failed injunction application, there could be benefits to the fact that you have brought it at all. Interesting. And so, I mean, you're, you're a labor law lawyer. You're a labor lawyer. There, Adam. <laughs> Whichever. Uh, yeah, and, and there are potentially, you know, some potentially spicy legal confrontations brewing between kind of organized labor and the government. You know, we have Bill Thirty Two regulations, the, the, um, you know, uh, essentially making union members check off the fact that they want their their part of their union dues that go do quote unquote political activities to be like. for their consent to be signed off at, which is a big one for the like kind of current existence, the way unions are set up like that is currently like that is a, that's a huge deal, right? That's a, a lot of unions are looking at as a, as a kind of an intro to right to work laws. You know, we have bill one, the protest law that is still only theoretical. No one has been charged with it yet. Um, uh, you know, we have the specter of legislated wage cuts and le- legislating workers back to work if there is, uh, you know, if there is is uh, strikes or, or or the specter that you or that you talked about when we were chatting about this before, Adam, something like legislated wage restraint, which I don't know, seems like a kind of a legalistic way to just bring in wage cuts. <laughs> I, um, well, it's it, hold, it holds wages or uh, caps them at a certain level, but yeah. 
And, you know, this government thinks it's going to be spending a billion dollars less on employee compensation uh, next year than from this year. And they, they can't all get there from cuts. Like, I think there is is trouble ahead when it comes to uh, organized labor in this province and the things that this government is doing to try and undercut them. And... <sighs> Yeah, it's it's. I, I realize that you're probably in a position where you can't speak too clearly about it, but I just want to flag this for our audience that like uh, these things are coming. Bill 32 regulations could literally come at any moment. Um, you know, this AUPE is an intervener in the the Bill One Charter Challenge, which is um, you know infrastructure where where any any protest that takes place on infrastructure and infrastructure is defined incredibly broadly and not really well defined at all uh, is uh, you know you get harsher penalties. Uh, criminalizing protests essentially is the argument that's being made. And, you know, we've all seen, you know, back to work legislation at the federal level. We haven't seen it at the provincial level for, for quite some time, but this, this argument, this, this recent development when it comes to injunctions, I think is, um, you know, incredibly interesting and perhaps relevant to those upcoming legal battles. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I will say is that uh, in 2019, in response to Bill 9, AUPE did bring an injunction application. Um, and similar to uh, in Avenish's situation, we were successful at the very first level in um, preventing the Bill 9 from taking effect. Uh, we were over that was overturned at the Court of Appeal. Um, but you know, th these are these are valuable and realistic tools that, as you individuals, organizations can all use. Uh, to restrain what they view as unconstitutional government action. Yeah, and I think there's a broader question around, you know, labor and and how much of a tool, you know, um, the courtroom should be and and lawyers and the legal process should be. But there's one more case since I got two law talking guys on. I got I got to get your opinion and your takes on the stuff that's happening to Pastor James Coates. So. As I'm sure we've all seen the news about Grace Life Church, this is a church just outside of Edmonton. You know, it has not been following public health orders quite brazenly, breaking them, you know, having packed uh, services, you know, social distancing not being um, followed. No one's, uh, very few people are wearing masks. And this had happened for months now. And this eventually has led to the arrest of Pastor James Coates. Um, despite all this, the church is still continuing to hold services every Sunday. I, 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 I await my Sunday morning news update where it's just like, yeah, the, the RCMP are still there at this church. Uh, and really a whole kind of like anti-lockdown, anti-mask, anti-vax protest movement has sprung up around this church and this pastor who is currently in prison, like literally in Edmonton Reband in a maximum security prison because he refuses to abide by the conditions of of the public health regulations. And so like, I, I, am I incorrect here? Like could pastor James Coates get out of prison at any time if he just was like, would sign a piece of paper that said, yes, I will follow the rules. So, so my understanding is so ERC, it's, it's not a max, but it is a prison. It's a remand. Um, he like, it, my understanding of why he didn't get bail was that he refused to continue. He refused to abide by public health orders. And if that's the only reason that he's been denied bail, his acceptance of that will likely result in him being granted bail. So um, it sounds like this is a political stand he's making. You know, he wants to be a martyr for a particular cause, uh, which is particular, which is interesting to me because, you know, all he has to do is accept that he won't, you know, hold these mass gatherings and he should be okay. Yeah, like every other church in this province is somehow managing to deal with 15% capacity, but it's apparently against his religion to follow public health orders. Um, you know, it's this is a big deal in Christian evangelical circles. Like my, I have a cousin, I have, I have, you know, evangelicals in my family. My cousin in BC was posting about this. Like this, this is a, a big deal. And, um, you know, there was a recent court proceeding where, you know, a, a judge ruled that this pastor who was accused of violating health orders was going to remain in jail. You know, that his bail would not be granted unless he agreed to abide by the conditions and the lawyer for, you know, the, the pastor in this case and the church in this case is, you know, legal icon uh, and, and someone who's always winning cases, uh, John Carpe with the justice center for constitutional freedoms. Uh, you know, this person is a, um, I don't know, a bit of a, a celebrity, <laughs> 
when it comes to Alberta politics. He's he's a well-known social conservative activist, good friends with Jason Kenney. Jason Kenney once described him as the the Rosa Parks of uh, uh, or as Rosa Parksian in his uh, his efforts to um, to win legal battles. Uh, I know you're both lawyers and you're both like not supposed to say mean things about your fellow lawyers, but I just wanted to drop a quote from John Carpe and his, uh, uh, from his podcast that went out last weekend that I just want you to stew in for a second. Quote, there is no science or evidence. It's a slogan, a political slogan, and we've been hearing it for 11 months. Science, science, science. I don't think the average person today knows any more about science today than the average person did 500 years ago. That's a uh, John Carpe on lockdowns. And you listen to this, this man talk about, you know, his beliefs and like why he believes he's doing his right. And, and his kind of legal and moral and ethical justification for, for taking on these cases. And it is, I mean, one, it's anti, I mean, it's anti-science, right? Like they don't believe that the tests are real. They don't believe that the deaths are real. They don't believe that the, the uh the the hospitals are being were overwhelmed in december like they just flat out to believe you know the facts as laid out by you know the authorities and i suppose my question is like how troubling is it to you when you have huge swaths of society that are just unwilling to deal with reality i i i think it's really interesting um just that this pandemic and this the context that we're operating within um, has resulted in a lot of these lawsuits around kind of charter rights, um, freedoms, things of that nature. And I'm not just talking about from folks who you know don't believe in science or anti-maskers or the groups that uh, uh, Carpe represents, but also like most of the work I've done in the last few months, last year, come from a similar standpoint. Right? It's all stuff initiated at the same time as the pandemic and the pandemics is exacerbating things. But, you know, we're coming from very different perspectives, right? Representing a very different notion of not just society, but also, you know, the rights engaged. And I just think it's so interesting that both John Carpe and myself and even Adam, we can be public law lawyers or constitutional lawyers, but raise issues and provide perspectives that are just so radically different from each other. Um, I, I just think it's just so fascinating. You know, what, what fights you want to fight during this particular period of time, which marginalized, uh, or, you know, in, in actually whether you want to represent marginalized groups or not in these battles. Yeah, uh, um, I agree with what Avnish said. And I think one of the, the neat things about law just conceptually is like Avnish and all the other lawyers, they're using the exact same documents, the exact same rights to advance their causes, even though the causes might be diametrically opposed or have no overlap. And it's really about trying to develop the law in a manner that you think is going to best serve um, your ends and your client's ends and potentially society's ends, depending on uh, what, what your, what your belief is. Yeah. And, and I have a deep admiration for the kind of law that Avnish does, you know, like these, these public interest cases where, you know, you're fighting, for the little guy, right? Uh, you know, a, a case that a hugely important case that you took on Evnish was the the case against um, the Habitat for Humanity. Uh, I can't remember the name of the development. Help me out. Uh, it's uh, it's the Carter place. That's right. Where yeah. there were these, uh, you know, f poor immigrant families that were at, at risk of being turned out of their home uh, by uh, Habitat for Humanity, a well known and respected charity here. And they came together. They hired you. You know, they came together with the community. You know, we shut down a a Habitat for Humanity restore for an afternoon, you know, like stuff came together where eventually, you know, the good guys won and, and Habitat for Humanity backed down. And that's like, I, I look at that example and I'm like, hot damn, that kicks ass. Maybe I could be a lawyer. And then, and then I am also reminded of the, like <laughs> the limits of the law, right? Like, um, you know, the rich and powerful are able to either ignore the rules or make up the rules as they go along. And, you know, I, I, I uh, I'm generally pretty skeptical in the kind of big picture of the ability of the the legal profession to really change the world. And and I suppose, you know, the, the question here is like, how effective ultimately is the law that you do going to be when it comes to like really making a difference? 
so I, I have this theory of kind of not change, but of the democracy that we live in, right? That there are multiple paths to get getting reforms, getting transformative changes to ensure that people, particularly people on the margins, can live the lives that they want to live, right? To thrive and be who they are and all that sort of stuff. And what I've noticed um, is that for some communities, people who use drugs, people who engage in sex work, um, you know, even, you know, migrant and refugee communities, uh, you know, often can't find a path towards recognition and change for their interests to be represented to the legislative process, right? Like, you know, for a while there, and I think to some extent today, there's no political party, you know, even among progressive political parties who are going to champion, you know, rights of drug users, who people live with, you know, opioid use disorder. Um, for some reason, just the way that our legislative system and democracy is structured, it doesn't allow for those issues, those interests to capture the public imagination, the public will of kind of electorate. But our democracy also has courts, courts who can shift the conversation, um, allow the, these rights and interests to be recognized and to you know, expressly and directly uh, shape laws in order to be more reflective of, of the whole community that we're in. And, you know, there are limits to the law. I'm, I'm the first to admit that. But there are pathways to achieving successes that are not available in the normal uh, legislative process, where politicians may have lack the courage uh, or willingness to take on unpopular causes. So that, that's where I see the value of the law, like where I want to position myself. And, you know, I think... Adam is the same, you know, given what type of law Adam does, exactly the same thing. Yeah, I think, you know, I I agree. I think for me, you know, law is one tool in a tool chest for making the societal change that you want. Um, and I think you'd be hard pressed to find any lawyer that said law is the be all and end all and it's perfect and you can you can achieve whatever kind of goal you want through it because you, you can't. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, law is human made uh, and is subject to the humans that are making it, the humans that are interpreting it, the humans that are arguing it. But I think it has a really valuable role. And I'll circle back briefly to what I said earlier, just in regards to the uh, IO case, you know, uh, you there's an application for an injunction that's brought, you lose the injunction, but you get something out of that. Um, so even there, if, you know, you didn't achieve through the law, what you wanted to achieve and to get that final goal, at the end of the day, you're still left with a success. And this law as a tool, this was one of the tools to help get you to that success. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the thing that's missing from your kind of analysis, Avnish, about why poor and marginalized people like drug users or you know former foster kids or whatever, why their issues are not the issues of the rich and powerful, like you're missing a class analysis, right? Like quite simply the like class position of those people is not a priority for the courts it's not a priority for the rich and powerful ergo uh you know it's not going to be a pri priority for the legislators <laughs> and the society at large and and i i think yes like the courts do give you an opportunity to raise issues and sometimes you know take small steps forward but like you know and given your your purchase as a, as a labor lawyer you know, there's a whole line of thinking, and I'm not a, a wobbly, but like there's a whole line of thinking from uh, kind of that kind of anarchist point of view that like labor law as it currently exists, like the Wagner Act and the Rand formula and these kind of like baseline assumptions that were constructed, you know, 80 years ago to kind of ensure labor peace have ultimately defanged and rendered unions kind of this um, kind of like legalistic, rule bound, bureaucratic institution that has kind of just gradually lost power and influence ever since that legislation has come into play. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, there there certainly is that that strand of thinking. And I mean, they point to things like that you can't, you you know, there's a legislative time in which unions can strike or um, members of unions can strike and kind of curtailing what actions can be taken and how they can be taken and uh, the checklist before taking any of those actions. And so, I yeah, I think certainly, um, there is that strand of thinking, um, but you know, they're they're going to have also people that are arguing that this is this is great and this system is actually helping further further goals. 
But you, I mean, what's what's kind of unspoken here is that unions spend a ton of money on lawyers, right? And, and your law firm is one of these firms. Uh, you know, there are a handful of these firms that that specialize in this case, and and unions view the kind of courts as one of the biggest and best ways to actually arbitrate their differences with power and 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 uh, you know employers. And you know, the argument that, for instance, the Wobblies would make, and and that I would make too, is that. Like you actually need to be challenging their power on the streets. The law is only as enforceable as as <laughs> as society deems it to be, and and when you look at uh, you know labor conflicts from the 30s, from before say the Wagner Act, uh, you know it was it was obviously a, a much more violent time, but like capital was actually scared of the consequences of what would happen if they didn't agree to X demand, right? Mm-hmm. The, the commerce would be shut down. Buildings would be set on fire. There would be riots in the streets, uh, you know, and, and consequently workers were often killed by Pinkertons and other violent actors for the, for the employers and the bosses. I'm not saying we could necessarily go back to that time, but I think what has happened in the 80, 80 some years since those kind of legislative legalistic means of kind of mediating labor power have come in has only been, has only been bad for workers. And that like, Ultimately, it's up to the workers to to kind of like would do what the rich and powerful do and write the law that benefits them, <laughs> and make it and make it make it so essentially. If you don't mind, I I just have a a thought or a critique of that approach. It's like, you know, there is this notion of you know working towards transformative change, right? Like this this preferred or idealized version of how society should exist, right? And I think. That's worthwhile, and some people do really great work on that, um, and really are pushing the boundaries of that. But at the same time, at least in my world, or maybe even in Adam's world, when either you know a worker, or a former person in child in foster care, or a you know someone who uses drugs calls you and says, "Hey, I got this problem," and if I respond by saying, "Hey, you know how you want to engage with this." Um, doesn't address kind of the broader movement of the where the broader movement should go. So you know, don't worry about your specific individualized case while we, you know, march in the streets or engage in transformative uh, change. I think that's going to fall flat for that person because that person, that individual who's being harmed, you know, wants some sort of relief right now. And I think for some folks, um, particularly, you know the groups and individuals I represent, you know, they want to address stuff right now within the systems that exist right now, but with an eye towards transformative change. Because if we ignore one or the other, you're going to leave, lead to circumstances where the person being harmed today is not going to get anything, any, any effective recourse. But if you ignore kind of the broader aim, then, you know, you're not going to get the changes you need over a longer period of time um, to, to make a more equitable and an inclusive society. So, you know, it's it's the it's a perennial debate between how much do you engage in it with the system or to change the system. And I think that it's very like difficult questions. But as long as there's people who are fighting both, um, hopefully together, <laughs> I think we can lead to real results. Yeah, I don't think it can be kind of an all or nothing or one or the other. Um because you know, even if even if you take the view that courts are largely ineffective, and I to be clear, I I don't take that view. Otherwise, I think I would have trouble in my job. Um, you know, there still is there's uh, there is some utility in in these processes. Of course, it cannot be what you hang your hat on. It can't be the be all, be all and end all. Um, but it is it is there, and especially on kind of the individualized basis, it is good for individuals and it's good that this tool exists but for larger systemic changes was really never been what courts are for i mean courts originally they arose kind of to to adjudicate individualized disputes and to some extent they're still beholden to that role yeah and and i think i don't wish for uh to dismiss like the individual cases for justice right like i i think we have very highly developed processes and if i was to make an analogy to like uh, like a bodybuilder, like I think the muscles for, you know, grievances uh, at the labor law level or these kind of like constitutional challenge public law cases that that 
Avnish's take takes on. I think we we have figured out largely as a society and as the left, we have figured out how to kind of manage those individual cases and, and make sure that justice is done. I think broadly speaking on the left, we've kind of neglected leg day, right? Like we are, we are, we have only done our arm curls and our bench press and we have neglected to do actually build the foundation of our power, which is the ability to actually bring about broad change and to reflect that power, you know, in the streets or legislatively or however you're willing to, um, however you wish to kind of, uh, um, exercise that power, but you've got to, to put in the work to actually demonstrate that, that you as a movement have the power and the, the numbers behind you to actually, to actually be able to flex those muscles, however you're choosing to flex them. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of fundamental um, kind of point that I wish to make, right? That, that, that is like, we have, as, as, a, as a movement, we have ignored leg day. We actually need to build power. We need to do more than just the kind of the stuff that, that we're good at. Yeah, like, but, you know, even when it comes to the law stuff, like, a lot of the stuff is, like, in my cases, this is novel. This has never been argued before, right? This is, in both cases, the option of last resort. This is after kind of organizing, demonstrating a bunch of things have failed to, you know, push policies or governments along in a particular direction. So they they come to me and I have to, like, make stuff up and, like, hopefully get a result. (laughs) But, you know, you know, in some cases, folks go to the courts right away rather than engaging in that direct action, you know? And I just think that, like, like, like yeah, I don't know if folks appreciate this example, but if you look at things, like, even in, you know, the civil rights movement in the United States or um, a variety of other kind of justice-oriented uh, transformational societal changes, it, it's folks working in tandem together and not kind of neglecting or even disparaging people who engage in other tactics um, but just like working together towards that common aim because you know when you're in it you don't know what is going to lead to the specific change you know you don't know if it's going to be a protest in the streets or a court case but you're just trying whatever you can to achieve that particular outcome and I, I think that you know you can't neglect either option but it's more effective if you work in tandem because I know that the work I do benefits from people who engage in that more direct approach, right? To shift narratives, shift understandings, shift values. Um, and I think vice versa, that some of the court work I do can do the same among, you know, society, but also within, you know, the, the, the political communities that I, I think are impacted by this because, you know, it took a long time for folks within the kind of the broader left movement to accept the experiences of the people who use drugs or, uh, you know, even people who engage in sex work. Um, you know, there are op- unpopular causes and constituencies within these political communities that, you know, often have to battle within those communities to get the recognition and respect they need. Yeah, and I think if I could jump in here, I think uh, just kind of with you mentioning working in tandem, Avnish, earlier on you mentioned kind of the role that media plays and you said in at least in relation to you know press releases the governments have been putting out about opioid and opioid use in the uh, ioat program um that quote i think you said media had the receipts um and i think this kind of underscores the need for kind of a multi-pronged approach that uh you know on the one hand you have kind of media that is drummed up interest around what the government is doing and the actions that are going on but at the same time you have a legal action going on at the same time and you know what what the legal action could have accomplished without um kind of the without the media or without public interest or something like that i don't know but the two together did get some kind of result yeah. yeah, I mean, an example of that, I mean, an example of that, Avnish, is the, the Habitat for Humanity case, right? Like you were representing the, the, the residents there as your lawyer, but then like Black Lives Matter came in and, and picked up this cause and, you know, shut down Habitat for Humanity Day. There were a handful of other actions that put pressure on Habitat for Humanity. And so, and as a result, the, the residents ended up getting what they wanted, right? Absolutely. Like without uh, BLM organizing, without those particular organizers and you know, residents kind of organizing among themselves and bringing these issues to bear, we wouldn't have had the, res- the result that we wanted or we got. And I think that's, it, it, it taught me about just like working together, right? Working with folks on the streets, but also with 
folks in the courtrooms to ensure that vulnerable marginalized people are able to shape this world they live in to get kind of the outcomes they need. And um, it's not going to be one or the other. It's got to be people working together. And I think Alberta is just getting to a point, maybe not in the labor context, but definitely in this constitutional um, kind of marginalized public interest context where you know, these organizations and these causes have to work together. Uh, and there has to be lawyers who are willing to take on these cases, these cases that often <laughs> are not funded. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, uh, incredible amount of work. And, you know, we've, we've got to have a real discussion in, in this province about building an adequate legal uh, civil society that's willing to take on these causes and work with movements. Yeah, uh, and I think... You know, I, I would just like to underscore you've worked exceptionally hard in all of these cases. And uh, I don't think I would recognize that from the outside looking in just how much work goes. Obviously, uh, community members put in huge amounts of work, but to shepherd these legal cases forward is also a Herculean task. That you, and you've been doing this over and over and over. And it's been really, it's been awesome to see. And I just want more people to do it. So I don't have to do it. <laughs> so if any lawyers listen to this or law students, Take this stuff on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and to everyone else out there, uh, build those organizing and power building muscles as well. Uh, I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, Evnish and Adam. Um, you know, now is the time to plug your pluggables. If you've got social media accounts or projects or things that you, people want to check out, the, the mic is yours. Adam, you go first. I, I mean, I don't really have social media. I don't have anything. Uh, so my plug will be this podcast and whatever Avnish is going to say. That's what you should be doing with your time. Um, so th there's a couple of things I want to plug, um, particularly around folks who organize in Alberta around for and who are people who use drugs, because there's so much work that needs to be done and there's so much harm happening. Um, you know, more than three Albertans a day are dying from this preventable situation. So, you know, from mom start to harm, to a variety of other groups in Alberta, grassroots organizations, rural harm reduction groups. We're working on this. Um, look, search them out, give them a plug, get engaged with these issues because it's going to get a lot worse. There's gonna be more preventable overdose deaths. The, the, the rates are going to climb significantly, particularly under this government's policies. So we need to be there for each other and to fight back. Agreed, yeah, Mom Stop the Harm do great work. Um, yes, I would definitely follow along with that and I'll put that in the show notes. Um, yeah, the, thanks so much for coming on guys. Uh, and for the folks who made it all the way to the end of this podcast, there are a couple things you can do to help us out. The easiest thing to do is of course, uh, non-monetarily, the thing, the best thing to do to help us out is, uh, to share this podcast with your friends and family. I think this is a really awesome conversation. I think more people, the more people that hear it, the better. Uh, monetarily, and that's obviously another big way to help us out. The easiest way to do that is to go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Uh, put in your credit card information. Give us a little bit of money every month, $5, $10, $15, whatever you can afford. I want to get to 500 donors by the end of the month. We're currently in the 440s, and I think it's very doable that uh, by the end of March in the next 20 days, that uh, that we make it to 500 some donors and uh, keep Jim and I you know, employed and with in groceries with a roof over our head. Also, if you have any notes on this show or thoughts, comments, things you think I need to hear, I'm really easy to get a hold of. You can reach me on Twitter at Duncan Kinney, and you can reach me by email at DuncanK at ProgressAlberta.ca. Thanks so much to Cosmic Famu Communist for the amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>